We know that. We have that down. Well, we've spent a few weeks on that. And this morning, we're going to shift gears and we're going to uh, begin the second half of our, our fall teaching emphasis. Uh, the topic is, is prayer. So we've spent the past five Sundays looking at discipleship through the lens of that mission statement. We've purposely kept discipleship simple. I hope you've gone away from that time together thinking that discipleship is all about following Jesus. It's all about making Jesus known through our lives, through our words and our actions, and living in such a way that others are encouraged to follow him, those who don't know him, that they become interested and desire to become and grow as his followers. And, and remember, we said there's a spectrum of discipleship, right? There is discipleship that is more evangelistic for those who don't know Jesus. They need to hear about him. And then as they commit their lives to being a follower of Jesus, then they begin to grow along that spectrum towards mature following of who Jesus is. So when someone makes a commitment to follow Jesus, uh, they are moving towards that end of maturity. Uh, that never is really achieved on this earth. you got to die. So maturity in Christ is something that we are always growing in as his followers. As long as we are alive in this life, there is more growing to do. And... One other thing that we learned, growth is always better together, right? Nod your heads, yes. Even if you don't believe that, it's right. I'm right, you're wrong. It's always better together, okay? Did I say that humbly? Not at all. All right. Prayer is an enormously part, uh, important part of, of a disciple's life, source of growth. I think it's a source of growth that is on par with our value and esteem of the Scripture. God gives us his word. God gives us his spirit to, to prompt us and to lead us and to, to teach us how to be people who are prayers. But, and I, I want to say this very gently, I think prayer is often misunderstood so that it is both underused and misused. I can say it that way. And when that happens... I think we deprive ourselves of the blessing that prayer is intended to be in our lives as followers of Jesus and as children of God. 2014, I couldn't find a more current one. The, uh, the Pew Research Center often does a lot of, uh, of studies related to religion in America and, and what do people think of this and that. So there's a 2014 Pew Research Center survey that found that 55% of Americans say that they pray every day. 21% say they pray weekly or monthly. 23% say they seldom or never pray. And even among those who are religiously unaffiliated, only 20% say that they pray daily. Women, at 64%, are more likely to pray than men every day at 46%. This I thought was a good one. They found that 65% of people ages 65 and older are far more likely than adults under 30 to pray daily. Well, of course that's true. 
At age 65, we're closer to death than we've ever been. And there is nothing like staring your mortality in the face to make you think, hmm, I wonder what comes next. So, Rachel, if we can put that next screen up. Some definitions of prayer just taken from three online dictionaries. A solemn request for help or expression of thanks addressed to God or an object of worship. An address, such as a petition to God or a God in word or thought. A reverent petition made to God, a God, or another object of worship. Do you hear a theme in those? Petition, God as object of worship, I kind of hear in there petition slash problem solver. I think it's expressed in this portion of an article that I read online, Psychology Today. It's entitled, The Arrogance of Prayer. And the writer states, forget the distant past, whether the universe is 14 billion years old, like scientists say, or 6 to 10,000, like followers of the Bible say, and forget whether God created it all in one fell swoop or whether it has been evolving gradually, this writer says, those aren't really the issues. They have very little bearing on how we live today. What's really at stake is something much more practical and pressing and indeed more powerful. The business end of God, he writes, is not the past effect on the present, but it's the present's effect on the future. Can you appeal to God to intervene in the workings of the world. If you pray just right, or behave just right, or come from the right tribe, does the Almighty, Yahweh, Allah, God, the higher power or spirit, put His thumb on the scales, tipping the balance your way? A mother prays that her daughter's cancer would vanish. A Muslim prays that the infidel would vanish. You pray that you get that promotion. A father prays for a source of income so his kids don't starve. A tribe prays that genocide against them ends. An evangelical prays for money to buy a new car. However big or small, worthy or unworthy, the cause, does, the cause is, does prayer ever work? In other words, is there divine intervention? Cynical as heck, right? But, but, I think his assumption of prayer's purpose reveals what I believe to be pretty typical of prayer among all humans. People, no matter their culture or their place in history, in their most vulnerable moments, if they are honest, if they pray, it is most often like the dictionary definition. It is a request or a petition because they need or want something. They are up against something they have no control over. And who knows? Maybe prayer will work. Prayer becomes a vehicle for getting what we want or need. And I think prayer, frankly, happens because we're human. And to be human means that we are mortal and we are easily undone by circumstances and events that cannot be controlled. Listen to this. In an interview with Fortune magazine, Ted Turner, 
founder of CNN, was asked, I know you were religious up to a point of seeing your sister suffer for five years and die at 17. The interviewer says, you've gone back and forth about whether you're agnostic. Has your lack of belief that God will save humanity motivated you to feel a level of responsibilities that others don't feel? Turner replies, if God's going to save us, it's time for him to show up. We're not showing evidence that we're ready to save ourselves. No kidding. And then he says, that's what bothers me. But when asked if he considered himself agnostic today, Turner said, yeah. But then he also offered some surprising thoughts on prayer. I still say prayers for my friends who are ill. Little short prayers. Many prayers. He says, it can't hurt anything. Those are telling words from a man who historically has been brutal towards Christianity and has called it a faith for losers. Viewing prayer as a tool for getting something, for receiving something, for solving a problem, I don't think is unique to the general population. My brothers and sisters, I think it can also be found and in common, perhaps, in some circles among God's people. Do we not often speak pejoratively about our prayer lists when we go into the presence of God? And we speak about them in a way that, that give it, gives evidence that, oh, I know I should do better. I know I should be praising God more. I know I should be thanking God more. Uh, and, 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 and honoring Him more, but... So often I am just in His presence with my list of things I need for Him to do. Isn't that why we use acronyms in our life? The ACTS acronym. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, or petition. We, we create these things to remind us of different parts of prayer and what is important because, because we tend as humans, don't we, to go to the, I need this. And... God has the answers. I think it's this very human tendency that has, has motivated me to choose for us a very familiar prayer. Oh, so familiar prayer. And one that we have studied in the past, often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Which is kind of interesting because He taught it to His followers. Recorded in Matthew 6 and, and Luke 11. I think, I don't know how this is going to strike you, but as I have studied again this week, and I've looked at this prayer so many times in my life, and have said it many, many times, I'm convinced this is the prayer that needs to shape our prayer lives. It needs to shape our prayer lives. And since I, I have the spiritual gift of pointing out the obvious, which I know you all appreciate so much, let me do so. In response to his disciples' request, Luke says in chapter 11, that Jesus would teach them to pray. This is the prayer that he taught them to pray. The prayer that we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Doesn't it seem reasonable to you that if there was something more important that the disciples should be praying about, he would have taught them that? You're not convinced? Okay, okay. 
it, it, it's, it's the prayer. So I, you know me. I've, I've played my cards before. I, I love to refer to it as the disciples' prayer. And, and let me add one more thought about that, and then we're going we're gonna to read it together in, in, its, in its context in Matthew. The disciples, you know this, were Jews. They were part of a culture that valued prayer. They were part of a people group that had set times of prayer established throughout the course of the day. These followers of Jesus, they knew how to pray. Prayer was not a new concept to them. So why ask Jesus to teach them to pray? I'm convinced. Jesus modeled something in his prayer life that the disciples had never seen before. They knew prayer was a vital part of their relationship with Yahweh, their God. Plenty of Old Testament stories abound that, that they had known since they were little kids about the power and importance of prayer. But Jesus lived out a new dimension in prayer that they had not witnessed or experienced. So we're going we're gonna to stand together and we're going to read this familiar prayer, but we're going to put it in a longer context. It's the first 15 verses of Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read that prayer and hear what Jesus says leading up to the words of that prayer that we know so well, and a few words that follow that prayer that we know so well. Because I don't know if the words before and after are quite as familiar to the prayer itself, but they're really important in the context of what Jesus is, is teaching. So let's stand together and, and read together. All right, here we go. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from the evil one. Or if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. My sisters and my brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord for us. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and be seated. Let me remind you of, of something that, that we have talked about before. In Matthew's Gospel, those verses that we have read together are part of the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's important to remember that because I don't believe that the Sermon on the Mount is intended for everyone. There are, there are a variety of perspectives on how the Sermon on the Mount is, is to be understood. But, but I think we get the best clue when we remember that at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, Matthew records that Jesus saw the crowds coming. The crowds were always coming after Jesus. Why wouldn't they be? He was magnificent. You know, he did things that they had never seen. You know, he, he performed miracles. He fed them when they were hungry. You know, Jesus was popular. Crowds abounded in his life. Matthew says, when he saw the crowds beginning to come, he purposefully went up to the mountain. And his disciples came to him. And Matthew tells us, he began to teach them. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that the crowd followed and they heard a lot of the teachings. But I believe that the target audience of the Sermon on the Mount was the smaller group of his followers who had committed to him and followed him up the mountainside. And the reason I say that is because there is no way in the world to live out those kingdom of God values, which quite frankly I think is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, to, to show a watching world what the kingdom of God looks like when it's lived out in terms of its values that are at the core of who God is. There's no way in the world to live those things apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God in an individual. And we know that the Spirit is a gift to all who commit to following Jesus. All who place their faith in Him, place their life in His hands. He is our power source, if you will, to follow and become like the Lord Jesus. And so, the word that Jesus uses in His teaching that we have read this morning, prior to the prayer, including that familiar prayer and the words after, that one word He uses changes everything. I'm guessing you probably know what that word might be. Want to take a stab? Yes. Father. Father, I, I wish we could have seen the look on the faces of his followers when he spoke of Yahweh as Father. It's interesting how he just starts talking to his disciples in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, and, and we read some of the teaching there 
you know, as they're living out their lives and, and as they go about some of the, quote, religious activities. Do it this way, don't do it this way, be like this, don't be like that, because your father, this is Yahweh. This is Yahweh whose name is so holy that the Jews will not use it. For centuries, the scribes would, would wash their hands, purify themselves before they recorded the name of the Lord in the ancient documents. This is the God of their history, their creator, the rescuer from Egypt, the God who had promised and given them the land in which they lived, the God who was terrifying because His power was unfathomable. Jesus taught them in these verses to live with the knowledge that that God who knew and cared about them was inviting them to address Him as their Father when they prayed. This is earth-shaking. I, I hope you hear that. This is earth-shaking. So, let's put that next slide up, Rachel, please. This then, this then, says Jesus, is how you, followers of Jesus, followers of me, he was implying, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be your name. So turn to your neighbor and ask them how they respond to this idea of God as Father to all who are followers of His Son. See what your neighbor thinks of that. And then tell them what you think too. A couple of minutes and then we'll continue. All right, my friends, want to share? Somebody want to tell us, what, what did you hear? What's, what's, what's your response, your neighbor's response, the idea of, of, of God as Father to those who follow His Son? Matt, <laughs> I love that. Yes, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Good point. We do have a lot of siblings. What else? Uh-huh. You are such a poor father. Okay. Okay. Good, 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 good. All right. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. Who else? Certain casualness. Yeah. I find myself taking up my, my granddaughter Sadie's expression. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> wow. An intimacy that we've been given as children of God. Yes. Theologians talk about the transcendence of God. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. Did you hear that? Concept for, for many folks in Latin America is a father is someone who has, who has created these kids and then he is gone from their lives. Gone from their lives. And that, I think, factors into our understanding and response to God as Father. I mean, some... Some folks and, and, and numbers of you more than likely have had horrific experiences with an earthly father. I would, I would say to you, don't throw out the concept of God as father because your father was a poor example of what a father could be. Don't, don't, don't give up on that yet. And I, I think we'll, we'll come to a place in this series where... Hopefully, we, we begin to see uh, the, the beauty and the, the wonder of that. If anybody knew 
who a good father was, it was Jesus, the eternal son. And that is the revelation. You know, so it's, as I've said, it's pretty certain that, that most of the Jews in that first century culture would not have thought of Yahweh as father. In a very similar kind of a cultural way, but on the other side of that, we have our post-Christian culture for those who believe in the existence of God, there is sometimes a sense that all people are God's children. We've heard that expression. We hear that expression expressed in church circles. I'm not here to point a finger or to tear anyone down. I just don't think that's biblically accurate. And by assuming that all humans are God's children, I think we are taking away from the incredible outrageous, wild truth that Jesus is communicating when he gives his followers permission to address Yahweh as God, as Father. Does that make sense? Um, I certainly agree that all people are important because they're created and loved by God, but, but to be a child of God is, is such a privilege. You remember the words of John when we looked at his letters how great is the love that God has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. And the point of reading this prayer in the larger context this morning is so that we hear Jesus contrasting the action of those who can have God as their Father with those who don't. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites who pray for the recognition of others. When you pray, do not be like pagans who keep on babbling. The assumption is <clears throat> there is a group of people who will act differently than this group of people, the children of God. So the main point of my sermon this morning, I think it's pretty simple, but it can be summed up in this statement. If you are a follower of Jesus, and I pray that you are a follower of Jesus, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'd love to talk to you about how you could be. So if there's any, any reservation at all, as to whether or not you are a follower of Jesus. Let's talk. But for followers of Jesus, then this, this will be true. You will pray regularly. We, followers of Jesus, we will pray regularly because God is our Father. And our prayers will be shaped by this crazy, unbelievable truth that we are somehow, some way, Children of God. It is a privileged status granted only to those who have put their faith in Jesus and committed their lives to following after Him. And so praying to God as our Father is going to be <clears throat> the lens through which we study every phrase of this prayer. I think it is that important. Now, does this mean that we then hear Jesus say, this then is how you should pray, that this is the only prayer that we pray? Verbatim. No, not at all. Because the Old Testament and the New Testament are full of, of prayers that are different than this one. But I believe that because Jesus is the supreme revelation of God's nature and character, that's a Hebrews 1 text, we know that. Because that is true, then I think His teaching about prayer is the supreme model for shaping our prayers. That's what we want out of this series is to understand what Jesus was saying in this prayer and to allow it to begin to shape 
our prayers as his followers. I believe Jesus intends for the concepts or the truths that are buried in this prayer to be the main themes or the guideposts, if you will, of our prayer life. So let me give you three, three truths about the first line of this prayer that you can, that you can take with you and, and hopefully you'll begin to think about it more and more as you go through this week. And we're going to come back to it again and again as we work our way through this prayer on Sunday mornings for the next few weeks together. First truth. It is important that Jesus says, Our Father. The plural pronoun is not a typo. It's not an accident. The our is us. As Nat said, we have lots of brothers and sisters. The our is, is us. O-U-R is us and all those who belong to Father God as his children. And as Jesus was saying this to his disciples, pray our Father, he was talking about himself and them. Our Father. Jesus' Father is our Father. Does this mean that we can't say my Father when we pray? Not at all. But I think there's a couple of things that are going on here. First, it is, in fact, an important reminder of all God's children that God has not done His redemptive work in Christ just for me. As special and wonderful as I am, His redemptive work is so much bigger than that. And, and to be honest with you, this might be more important to American believers than, than to others. Uh, that's, that's, just a, that's just a maybe. Because in this land of ours, we are all about individual rights. Thus, our praying, if we're not reminded of this, can become pretty myopic. We have made statements like, if you had been the only one on planet Earth, Jesus would have died for you. Well, that's a sweet notion. But it sure in the world isn't biblical. It just isn't. And, and, and so, to, to, I, I, I'm, I'm not his favorite. I'm not the only person on God's agenda to pray with an awareness that God, my Father, is also our Father, me and countless millions who've gone before me and who will come after me. That, I think, is a way to be reminded to keep my heart open to the amazing, ongoing miracle of God's saving activity in the world by grace. Not because anyone is special enough to deserve it, but simply because God is loving enough to do what he has done through Jesus, the firstborn son, as Paul would say. So, another thing about the plural pronoun is that it's a wonderful reminder to pray with my brothers and sisters in Jesus. I know I pick on you a lot, but all of the introverts are going, oh no, here we go. But it's, but it's a reality. It's, it's a reality. That, you know, discipleship is better together. You know, prayer, I won't say is better together. I'll say prayer is important together. We as God's people, we pray together and we can encourage one another. Jesus' words about praying in your room in secret were broken over and over in the book of Acts. Believers were together often, and they prayed together. So it's safe to say that that's not what Jesus meant. 
he intended that those who are his children, that those who are the children of God, will pray with humility and that they, it, it will reflect their understanding of the one to whom they are praying, whether they are alone or whether they are together with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it's easy for us to allow our concern about what others may hear to influence our willingness to pray with others. And thus we've made it about ourselves. Make sense? Tony Campolo tells a great story about um, his pastoral prayer in a church when he was a young pastor. And, and if you know him, he's a smart aleck. And as he's leaving the church, and people are leaving, and he's shaking hands and good morning and, and all those things, a woman said to him, you know, uh, Pastor Campolo, I, I heard three grammatical errors in your pastoral prayer this morning. He thought about it a moment. He said, you know, that's all right, because I wouldn't talk to you anyway. <laughs> that's the idea. I think that is the mindset that is important for us to embrace and to step into praying with others. Well, I, I don't know how to pray. Well, then pray with someone and learn how to pray. You know, begin to use this pattern for prayer, this model prayer, to shape your praying. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to grandstand on that. Oh, but I will remind you, because I made a note here to remember, there is a workshop next Sunday following worship on prayer. How convenient would that be? You're here for prayer, you know, for worship anyway, and we're going to get that rolling right at about 11.15, should be done by about 12.30. Lunch won't be too cold. You can still make it home and eat lunch. Just saying, there just happens to be a prayer workshop next Sunday that is going to kind of zero in on the plural experience of prayer. Just saying. Okay, another truth that I think is found is, is, is where Jesus locates our Father in heaven. This is such an important statement. It is, quite frankly, it's a reminder of God's rule. Heaven, in whatever form you think that might take, in whoever's books you have read, uh, whatever form heaven kind of has in your mind, what it needs to mean when you hear Jesus say this is it means that God is above and over the earth in terms of His presence and control. Our Father in heaven. The one who controls everything. He is involved big time in the affairs of our earth, but He is not of the earth. He is not a created being. He is eternal. He is the creator. He is the source of all life. Our God is not only a loving Father, He is a powerful and controlling God, the ultimate authority. Nothing, and nothing means nothing, happens on earth apart from the approval of the one who created it and who gives life to everything and everyone on it. Our Father in Heaven. Wow! Not only do we get to call the God of our universe Father, but we get to affirm and be reminded of who He is as He controls His world and brings history along the path that He has planned for it. That's awesome! Thank you! Alright, third truth kind of flows out of that second truth about our Father in Heaven. Hallowed is your name. Prayer team, why don't you come on up? I'm looking at the clock. Come on up. I'm going to run through this. 
and uh, we'll be ready to, to conclude in just a couple of minutes. Hallowed is your name. It's an old English word, hallowed for, for holy. And personally, I, I think this statement is an important reminder because Jesus, Jesus knows well, and he knew well when he was teaching this prayer to his followers, the fallen human heart. He knew what we as people living in a fallen world are all about. Now, you know, because I've confessed it many times, that I have a phobia of things being too familiar, right? In the spiritual realm, spiritual truth. Well, i got to tell you, it goes off the charts when I think of my tendency to get so comfortable. Monica, you used the word casual. To get so comfortable and so casual with God as Father that I begin to treat Him like I treated my own earthly dad. Who I loved to death. But there were times in which I was just horribly disrespectful to my Father. Our Heavenly Father is cut out of a different world. And again, this would go back to, for some of you, uh, poor relationships that you've had with an earthly father. Hard to respect, to love, to, to, to give yourself in trust to an individual like that. But not this Father. But not our Heavenly Father. Holy is your name. Holy is your name, says Jesus. Is a statement of both the moral perfection of God, and it's also a statement that He is totally other. He is not a perfect human being. He is a perfect God. He is the perfect God. He is, in fact, the definition of perfection. Perfect in thought and emotions and actions and decisions in every way that a being could be perfect, and we can't even imagine that. God is perfect in every way. When we see people in the scripture who fall down on their faces when they realize that they are in the presence of God, they're responding to the holiness of God. They're responding to, to the perfection of God. None of us can imagine the burning, convicting intensity, the, the undoing of ourselves when we find ourselves face to face with the holiness of God. I always chuckle to myself, usually to myself, when folks make comments like, you know, when I get to heaven, God and I are going to have to talk about this. And I'm thinking to myself, nah, not going to happen. Just not going to happen. You know, we, we take our clues from the elders Revelation chapter 4 and 5. What are they doing 24 hours a day? They're falling on their faces before the Holy One who sits on the throne. Oh, brothers and sisters. Our God, holy is your name. His, his perfection, His being is holy. And it is a challenge for us and a reminder for us to remember, oh, God is my Father. 
But he, in fact, is so holy and so perfect that were it not for his grace, we would be undone in his presence forever. So, we'll continue on next week. Take some of these truths and let them begin to percolate in your head and, 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 and read through this prayer. You know, maybe once or twice a day, just become more and more familiar with it and, and use the lens that Jesus has given us of our Father who is in heaven. Let that be the lens through which you begin to interpret the phrases that Jesus teaches us in the prayer. We'll unpack those together in some ways to come. Amen.